Hey, Coach Arlen here. What do Walt Disney, Andrew Carnegie, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, and FDR all have in common? They shared one secret that propelled them to achieve remarkable success. They each belonged to a mastermind group. If you've never experienced the power of a mastermind group, now is your opportunity. Join my business success mastermind group today. New cohorts are starting soon. To learn more, go to ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. The Courage to Lead, episode 209. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having an exceptional week. I'm having a great week and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest. Please help me welcome Alan Stevens. Alan Stevens is an international profiling and communication specialist who has worked with international clients, the likes of Disney Films and Gillette, and high profile organizations like the Australian Federal Police to help them understand how people tick. Alan works with business owners and executives, helping them to understand and engage their clients and prospects enhancing their presentations, negotiation skills, and increasing sales. He also works with parents and teachers to help them enhance the ability of their children to reach their full potential while improving the experience of the parents, teachers, and students. His latest community initiative is the Campfire Project. The Campfire is a safe place for men and women to give themselves permission to tell their stories, to share their experiences and wisdom from around the world. This is his hashtag we together initiative. Alan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks for the great introduction. Oh, no. It's, uh, so much about when, when you and I first met and first talked, we could have talked for hours. There's oh, yeah. so much, so much um, that I, I appreciate the work you do and, and things. And I'm fascinated by the, the work you do because so you recognize locally, nationally, internationally, right? Um, you've right. won different business awards, business person of the year, education, overall business of 2020, social change maker and man of influence, 2021. Well done. Thank you. You're a busy guy. <laughs> <laughs> you think at my age, I'll be slowing down, but no, I think I've just found another gear to throw the, the vehicle into. No, that's that's excellent. And then uh, I was reading about you. You've been referred to as a leading authority on reading people, which we're going to get into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also referred to as the mentalist meets Dr. Phil. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> there's been some great titles i've been given absolutely all right we're going to come back we're going to talk about uh like i said how you got your start how you got involved with reading people the micro expressions and everything like that um how that uh, has built into the programs that you have now working with people and how you help them and we'll talk about your uh, campfire project but before we get started alan i've got 10 questions that i like to ask each one of my guests uh listeners know these are the questions made famous on the tv show inside the actor's studio where the host James Lipton asks these questions of his Hollywood stars from TV, film, and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, sir, I've got 10 questions for you. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Favorite word is yes. <laughs> awesome. What is your least favorite word? Well, it's got to be the opposite. No. <laughs> what turns you on? What turns me on, I think, is the uh, the relationships and the connection with other people. That really um, excites me. Nice. And what turns you off? Oh, it's people who don't, uh, don't uh, walk their talk. Turns me off very quickly. Yeah. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, sound. The, uh, the sound of uh, music. And when I talk about that, it's more around, uh, you know, uh, you know, heavy, what do you call it, um, band music with more around the wind uh, instruments. Okay. I love the horns. Nice. What sound or noise do you hate? Oh, people fighting. Okay. Yep. Uh, question seven, what is your favorite curse word? Oh, I think the one that I probably use with myself a few times when I'm doing things is, and I, we're all adults and grown-ups here, so shit. Okay. <laughs> All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I would have loved to have uh, been a musician, but I have no skills in that area whatsoever. 
All right. What profession would you not like to do? I would not like to be a politician. Thank you. Absolutely. Same, same here. All right. And final question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You've done a good job. Well, you certainly have done a lot, and I want to try to get into as much as we can while we have the time. Um, We're going to take a short break, but we're going to come back, talk about how you got your start, how you got involved in the stuff about reading people, um, how you help the clients that you currently work with, and then we'll talk a little bit about your campfire program. And at some point, we'll transition into leadership and courage, all right? Yep. So listeners, we're going to be talking about all of that and probably a lot more right after this, so stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Alan Stevens. Alan, thanks again for uh, taking time out of your day to see us. It's early for you, right? What time is it out there? It's uh, just after 8 a.m. in the morning. So, and the next day from you. So, welcome to the future. Perfect. <laughs> I'm talking to somebody from the future. That's great. Uh, whereabouts are you located? I'm north of Sydney by about 160 kilometers, a place called Newcastle. Newcastle. Right on the coast. Very cool. Beautiful. All right. So, you specialize in human pattern recognition and the art of reading people. Tell me how you got started in that field. Well, I've been uh, in a lot of different industries. I started with our national telephone carrier back in, uh, this is a show my, show my age, in uh, 1969. I then uh, came to Newcastle in 1975 and was put in charge of men who were all older than me. So I was 23 and my second in charge was 38. So I had mm. to get all the men on, in, on side. Sure. And so I started with body language in those days. And then after 23 years with, the, uh, with telecom, I left them. And took my redundancy and started my own business. And I've worked in just about every industry you can think of uh, since then. But in every case, it's always been working with people. And so and that was the one thing that's always been thrown at the deep end. In the surf club, being put in charge of uh, doing my bronze medallion, becoming a surf lifesaver, and the following year being a patrol captain in charge of people, getting them on side, then uh, being club captain, supervisor of three beaches, and all these things. So it's been in the social area, it's been in the private area, and in uh, the uh, what was it, ninety uh, two? My uh, first wife left, and I had three sons to raise on my own. So that mm-hmm. was another issue then of learning to understand my boys, sure. working and doing a business, plus also raising the, the uh, my sons. So it's been a lot of events all the way through. And so as I've worked in all those other industries. I've uh, learned more and more skills. I uh, became a massage therapist, aromatherapist. I worked with color therapies and sound therapies. I actually introduced both of those into the Singapore hospital for the kids mm-hmm. with ADHD. Uh, I've worked a lot with psychometric profiling, where you ask people questions, question very long questionnaires, in DISC, Myers Briggs, Enneagrams, and a number of other different systems. And in the uh, early 2000s, I was working with a company that brought me in, they were a currency trading group, and none of their students made any money, so they wanted to find out why. We went in and we used psychometric profiling to uh, read people, okay. and then found that when we started uh, training them, and especially when they went live and started uh, trading their own money, they were losing money, and they didn't match their personalities. And I did a bit of system of reading people, and somebody said to me, have you ever read, uh, looked at reading faces? Now, I'm a curious sort of person. The most important thing you'll, I'll ever learn is the next thing I learn after I think I know everything. <laughs> so I started doing some research and I found Paul Ekman, who did all the research on the micro expressions. Right. And I found uh, a lady who, Naomi Tickle, over in the States, an English lady who worked with the facial features. So I put those two together along with the body language I'd been using all that time. And I had my NLP masters in my 90s and early 2000s. Nice put all that together, created rapid trait profiling, which became unique worldwide. And uh, it allows me to just look at somebody, know their personality. Then when I'm talking to them, get the feedback, know if I've read them right, is there anything emotionally going on? And are they telling me the truth? Wow. 
Wow. So uh, body language, I know, you know, when you, when you talk about giving presentations, my background is in organizational change management. So we help businesses do a lot of communicating with their employees. The, the language you use, the words you use is only a fraction of the communication, right? Because you can say something, but your body language can say the exact opposite. Um, when you talk about the isometric profiles and stuff like that, that you were doing, is that what you were finding is that people were answering maybe the way they thought? They were supposed to answer, but really, they were they were something different, right? Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. By the way, I know there's an argument over the importance of the words. There's one group that says, well, we know that 7% of the communication are the actual words themselves. The way they're spoken, the tonality and everything else makes uh, 38%. The words are only worth 7 they're worth 38%, and the body language is 55 and therefore, everyone says, oh, there's more importance in the body language and uh, the uh, tone of voice. They're all equally important because yeah. without all of them, you don't have communication. Sure. But the information that you gain, there's more from the nonverbals than there are the actual physical words themselves. And so being able to recognise that, but again, you know, body language, people look at it and go, okay, well, someone's got their arms folded. So they're, they're, they're uh, closed off, but they may not be closed off to you. They could be closed off to the cold. So it's knowing the reason why it could be that they're intimidated. Right. So you're looking for changes, but you're also looking at things in combination. Yeah. Well, that old saying, the actions speak louder than the words, right? That's I, exactly can, right. I can command myself to say mm. certain words, even practice the tonality and how to present. I was an actor in school, right? Mm. So I could do that, but your body language, those micro expressions you talked about, those happen subconsciously. You don't, that's you can't it. make those happen. They, they are just there. And that's telling the absolute truth of, of what you're actually feeling. Yeah. So the closest you can come to faking those, you've got someone like say a character actor who has studied the part of the other person. Like if you look at the role of Hannibal Lecter, mm -hmm. you look at him on screen and you thought, yes, he is a psychopath. But the expressions they put on everything, because there's a delay. They're in the actual conscious time. Whereas, as you said, the others are just in a fraction of time. When something happens around you, something is said, we unconsciously react. Then our conscious mind steps in, and that can be as fast as a fifth of a second down to one twenty-fifth of a second. Wow. So it's faster than the click of the fingers. But the human eye can pick it up. Wow. A little but bit of while you're doing, you can do it. While you're doing the interview... Do you usually have one person asking the questions and then the other person watching? It's always handy to do that because the person asking the questions is always thinking about the question they're asking and phrasing it away. And the other person is then uh, monitoring that and seeing what's going on. And this is where people who have got a couple of people who are well-trained in uh, interviewing. One will ask questions and the other one will be taking notes, but then they'll have noticed something. And then they will ask the questions and the other person then observes. And so you're able to then pick up what's really going on. Nice. So it's a bit of a skill, but uh, something that anybody can actually learn to do. That's great. And you mentioned Paul Ekman, right? Professor yeah. Emeritus at, of Psychology at University of California, San Francisco. He was the basis or foundation for the TV show Lie to Me. That's right. right. I mean, they took some liberties, I'm sure, with the TV show, but his work is is fascinating and you got to work with him correct well, i worked him. with a group there but what you'll find is that in the first series of that it's extremely accurate but then the following series after that they got used to him of course you know you've got someone yeah. there who can read your face people are worried about that yeah. uh, but once they realize just what a gentleman he is and why he was doing it not to actually manipulate people but to build relationships and show people how to be able to pick up where the truth is uh, well, of course, they, you, know, you can only give so much ed education in a program, and then after that, it becomes boring. So you've got to make it exciting. So you're going to throw in a lot of uh, uh, superficial uh, stuff on the in the program to keep it interesting. Sure, absolutely. Now you say that employers can learn to read candidates for job. I know right now a lot of people are struggling hiring good good uh, candidates for jobs. They'll hire somebody. The person will say everything that they want to hear. Their resume mm -hmm. says everything that they, they want to hear. They hire the person and the person just falls flat. Mm -hmm. Is that the difference we're talking about? Is that maybe internally they don't feel, you know, they're not driven. Like they say in the interview, I'm, I'm driven, I'm type A, I like to do this, but really 
emotionally, maybe they're not at that point, right? Well, that's right. So, and the other thing too is in that moment, this is where we judge somebody in the moment, we take it that as being their, their normal self. This is one of the reasons why the facial features became so important at the front end. It's the foundation. It allows you then to benchmark everything else against that. If you look at someone's face, if you think about it, if you lift weights, you're going to build muscles in your body. We also know that everything we feel inside, we express outwardly. This is why the body language and the micro-expressions work. You put those together. And so when you're concentrating and you're thinking, you're going to pull different expressions. And by using those muscles over and over, you're going to build ridges and crevices on your face. So your face becomes a roadmap or a history of how you like to think and process. Mm. It's not your character. This is not phrenology that the psychologists first brought out you know, decades ago and then debunked where they said bumps on their head would be serial killers and things like right, that. Right. Because that's about character. You know, character is the intent behind what you're thinking about, whereas okay. the personality is how you're thinking. So that then gives us, you know, if somebody really concentrate, like I call these expressions and I've got these vertical lines between my eyebrows and I'll start to build ridges above the eyes because I'm pulling those muscles all the time. I used to have exposed eyelids because of all the concentration that I do. I'm always looking down and pulling the eyes down. So mm. now I've got where the, the skin is coming over my eye, over the eyelashes. That's not just age. That is from the work that I've been doing, focusing and researching and studying so much. So we, our face then becomes a history of how we've thought, we've thought and processed. Interesting. So okay. if we've got that to start with, we know the person's level of, um, of confidence, for instance. We know how they're likely to behave within a team. Are they a team player? Are they somebody who is more self-reliant, who just likes to uh, work on their own? You've got someone like that, yes, and a number of other skills, they might be a great boss, but then we also have to teach them how to recognise their staff and how to then bring the best out of them. Because just having particular skills is one thing, you know, different uh, personality traits, but then to be able to apply that with other people, that's where the real gift comes in. Wow. Very cool. So how long does it take to teach someone to read those expressions? Say a, a, an employer is looking to be better at the interview process and bringing in the right people. How long does it take to get them comfortable with that? Well, looking at the expressions, they can be taught fairly quickly because there's only seven expressions that we're looking for. Okay. You know, the face can pull over. Well, I think Paul uh, and his team worked out 3,000 different expressions that they mm -hmm. put into a manual called FACS, Facial Action Coding System. But in that, so there's seven expressions, which he um, originally had six, but then uh, brought it to seven. And this was back in 1969 when he went to the Foray tribe in uh, Papua New Guinea. He experimented with it there. He actually, you know, they'd never seen a white man before, no radio, no TV. So he virtually proved that there are seven expressions which are universal. That's, um, you know, anger, contempt, disgust, happiness, sadness, fear and surprise. If you have any one of those emotions, you will have the corresponding expression on your face. But they are fleeting things when it comes to what we call micro-expressions because it's a response to something you might say to someone. You might be asking a question and you see the look of contempt or disgust on their face right. when it should be a different expression. Now you know that something's wrong. Right. But again, it's not just taking one of those, it's taking them in clusters, getting a, an overall picture. You know, it's mm. like you and I grew up, we used to have uh, uh, on the mantelpiece at home, there was on the wall, there were three ducks. There was a big one at the bottom, another one slightly smaller above it and a smaller one again. It was like three ducks flying off. Mm -hmm. And the old saying we used to have was get your ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same thing here. It's not just taking one thing. It's looking for all of them, but it's also looking, are they congruent with the situation? Are they at the right timing, et cetera? And uh, they uh, in context as well. Right. Wow. Well, and that's one thing my wife and I used to love about the, the TV program, Lie to Me, is they would show them, ask a question of somebody, and that quick micro expression, they would freeze that. Mm. And then before they broke away to a commercial, they'd show politicians, you know, other famous people with that exact same expression mm. to show you, look, every one of these people did that. They had that shock. They had that disgust. They had that, that you know, oops, I've been caught expression on their face. I thought yeah. that was fascinating, but it yeah, is, it's a combination of the question that was asked hmm. that quick micro response, but then their response to your question, which could have been totally different. If they don't match up, you know, something's there, 
right? That's it. And so you, the argument when these things, when they first started looking into this was that, um, you know, I think with Margaret Mead and a lot of others, the um, anthropologists leading up to that point had said no, that uh, Charles Darwin, when he said he travelled the world, he couldn't understand what people were saying, but he could understand their emotions via their expressions, et cetera. Uh, and uh, she was saying, and all her contemporaries were saying, no, that he was wrong because it was uh, cultural. Well, the cause of the anger was going to be different for every person. That right. can be cultural, right. but the emotion itself is universal. And Paul proved it didn't matter if he came from a, a, a tribal village where he went and did the research, a capital city or a, uh, a country town. And even if you've been blind from birth, mm-hmm. if you feel one of those emotions, you'll have a corresponding expression on your face. Sure. Yeah. People who are blind from birth, they still smile. They still show happiness. They still show, right? Mm. Wow. Yeah, neurology and physiology are linked. And that's one of the things that once I understood that, then I started seeing the connections between so many of the different modalities that I was working with that I was able to then create rapid trade profiling. Nice. So you work with business leaders. Who else do you work with? I work with uh, parents and school teachers uh, and also with individuals. We just had a conversation yesterday with a couple who were having some uh, stress in their marriage. So with that being able to look at their personality traits to start with and knowing the difference in their traits. So knowing where they're similar, but also knowing where they're different and then being able to show them how to change the way they're talking to each other, talk to each other's traits. They're not changing their own personality. They're just changing the way in which they're communicating. Mm. And straight away, once they do that, all the issues in their marriage start to disappear. Nice. Nice. uh, Especially with parents and school teachers. I love working because... If we look at uh, the way the education system is at the moment, it was designed, we came from the agricultural age into the industrial age. And to do that, we had to be educated to work in the factories and the mines and everything else. Then we went to the uh, information to the information age after the uh, industrial age. Now we're in the social age. And our kids today, they want to have a quality of life. So what we're teaching them at school is not uh, fitting the bill. Right. And so with that, there's a lot of kids that don't fit into our education systems and we're misjudging them or mis, uh, 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 putting them into boxes, in the wrong boxes, yeah. when all we've got to do is change the way we talk to them and problems are solved. I've sure. still got one mother at the moment who's just about to do and She said she's doing another testimonial for me, her and her 18-year-old son, and I profiled her son when he was six years old, mm. with, you know, heavy with Asperger's and on medication, and it's completely changed their lives. And this is now 12 years later, still getting results. All they had to do was talk to his traits. Nice. Yeah, I think uh, our school systems, certainly here in the US, we force kids to to get a college degree. You have to get Mm -hmm. a degree. There are skilled trades that make a lot more than people with degrees make. There are artists, you know, Mm -hmm. that these people feel fulfilled because they're they're living their dream of actually creating art, creating, you know, whatever. And I think we... We don't do them. We do a disservice by pushing them, I think, into college. That's if that's it. not really for them. Right. Wow. And you are an Amazon number one best-selling author. Your book is The Face, How to Get Your Ideal Career to Match Your Personality. This is where you help students who are getting ready, right, to go out into the career world. That's it. How to how to match what is it their their uh, their emotional state or how they answer the questions that they're going to come in, in contact with? No, what it comes down to is that every trait we has has an upside and a downside. The upside is where our strengths are, what we're really good at uh, doing, and so with that, we, if we know that side of things, we can then find careers that will match our personalities. And so by understanding that, the downside is where we get stressed and the sort of things we shouldn't be doing. In business, everybody has, uh, you know, in an organisation, we have teams and teams are made up from people who are different, not from people who are the same. And so we're looking for those differences. Because somebody who's got different traits to me will like doing the things that I don't like doing and will love doing the things that I hate doing. So if I'm able to understand who they are, put them into those roles so they can do that, they're going to be happy and productive. And at the same time, I can then uh, do the jobs that I love to do and I can take the stress away from them by doing the things that they don't want to do. And now we've got a team. Now, if we have a look at that, at school, the kids that we got on with were the similar to us. They liked the same things. They liked the same girls, the same boys, et cetera. The um, kids that we didn't like, 
didn't like any of that. So we don't get on with them at school because we don't understand them. But when we go to the real world, into the business world, those kids that we didn't like at school are going to be our best allies in the business world because they're not going to go for the jobs that we go for. They're not going to go for the partners we're looking for. Mm. And But our friends are going to be doing the same things and they're our competition Wow, for the same job. So when I sit and talk to kids, these are the things I explain to them. And so they start to look at each other a little bit differently. The next thing is to teach them how to read each other's traits so they know how to talk to each other. And therefore, I'll have one young fellow who was 15 years old who went through my master program. When I asked him how he was using it, he said he was profiling the other school, the school t- the students. And I said, well, how's that going for you? And he said, well, I now understand why they push my buttons. Mm. I understand why I don't like them and everything else. And I now understand why they do the things they do. And I said, well, what does that give you? He said, tolerance. Nice. This is one of the reasons why I want to get it into the hands of the kids. Yeah. I wanted to go through the school teachers first of all, but with the education systems, that doesn't work too effectively because of sure. the bureaucracy. But if I can get it into the hands of the kids, then I can go back to the teachers and apologize. I've created a problem for them <laughs> because the 14-year-old boy that I trained, when I asked him how he was using it, with the cheekiest of smiles on his face, he said, I'm profiling the school teachers. And I said, how's that working for you? And he said, oh, he said, I don't know which ones to pick and which ones to leave alone. I'm stirring them more than I've ever stirred them before, and I'm not getting <laughs> anywhere near the trouble I was getting into before. Wow. So I couldn't really use that as a marketing tool before. No, but, probably um, not. If I can get the skills into the hand, into the kids, I can then go back and apologise to the teachers and say, right, you need to learn this now, or otherwise yeah. the kid's going to have it all over you. But for the kid to say tolerance, that's something mm. we could all use more of. I think that's, exactly. that's awesome. If you could get that in the hands of the kids, absolutely. Mm. So is this ge- um, geared towards like high school kids or, or is it any age? Any age, really, because when you uh, look at it, we've got certain traits that were, well, we've got nature traits, we've got nurture traits. The nature traits came down our DNA, passed down from our parents, because every memory we have is stored in every cell of our body. So at the time of conception, the memories of all of our parents are in our DNA. Also the structure of our facial, you know, initial things like our structure of our face, et cetera. But then as we get older, we start to build our nurture traits, how we choose to respond to our environment. So in a newborn, there's a couple of traits that I can see. I already see what they're going to be like when they get to school. I can see if they've got a music trait, like a gift for music and things like that. When they get to school, there's a whole lot more traits. But before they pick their final subjects, we're able to then guide them by going, you've got the job guide there in America. We've got a job guide here. If you give that to the kids and say, go read this, well, it's like giving them the uh, white pages, telephone directory. They're not going to read it. But if you said, hey, these are a couple of jobs that might interest you, go and check these out, it becomes a yellow page uh, type thing, the professional organisations, where they can then go and have a look and go, yeah, I can see that I like this one. I can see the aspects of that. Yeah, that matches what I like doing. And we can guide them to the careers that match their personalities, not pushing them to degrees because... You know, an actual uh, trade might be far more happier for them. I've had a few people say, oh, but I want my you know, child to have um, a good income. And I go, well, they'll probably need a good income if they're unhappy because they're going to need it for medical bills. But <laughs> yeah. if they're not happy, it's going to reflect back into their uh, their health. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. So makes it nice and easy. Yeah. No, that is that is great. Very cool. Um. Let's talk about courage and leadership. First of all, where did you find your courage? You know, we talk about the different courage we have to talk into or talk, tap into uh, when we go through different stages of our life mm. and into leadership. You've been through a lot of things, a lot of changes, mm. and you've kept going. You've mm. never, you didn't, you probably had opportunities where you could have said, you know what, I'm out. And yeah, you kept well, going. When I looked at it, I've, you know, I've had the feelings at times, well, yeah, what am I doing? Am I wasting my time here? <laughs> I just think that uh, I'd like to say that I don't think I'm that bright because <laughs> I would just take things on and go, well, what choice have I got? I can either go back to what I was doing, which wasn't working, or I just keep moving forward. And I think a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, give it uh, the name of courage to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think they just come down to, well, what I thought was right at the time. You know, the moral reasons around the ethical reasons, et cetera. And if I focus on why things need to be done, 
then I haven't had to be courageous. I've just done what needed to be done at the time. Yeah. And I think a lot of cases, as we say, we, you know, we plan our life out, but uh, while we're doing all the planning, you know, life just happens to us. Right. And I think in a lot of cases, the things that I've done have been very much that. There's been a progression of um, uh, starting out in one area, then starting to move forward. Things have happened and I've just kept going. I've been pushed this way and that way. But as I said, I've worked in just about any industry you can think mm-hmm. of. Started out with the techn- as a technician, left them as a principal technical officer, had a high-speed printing house and mailing house. We used to you know, be agents for Xerox. I was an antivirus specialist. I've been an aromatherapist. I've worked in the fuel industry, in the building industry. Oh. Uh, you know, in uh, an eight-year period, I had uh, different uh, that many different careers, but all were running my own business and working across all these different industries. Nice. So I was just fascinated by the things around me. So I was looking at where I was going, not so much what I had to do to get there. Sure. But the intellectual courage, right, is the courage to set aside your long-held beliefs and the knowledge you currently have to make room for brand new knowledge. Mm. You've done that. It's always, mm. there's something new to learn. I want to get out there and learn it, right? Mm. Here's something that intrigues me. I want to go after and find this. But for some people, that's scary. And they say, mm. well, I don't, I, people have asked me at your age, you're starting this. It's like, well, mm. you know, I, I heard a, a psychologist years and years ago, had a guy call in on a radio program talking to the psychologist and guy was so upset. His life was nothing that he had ever planned it to be. He had always wanted to be a Marine biologist. Mm-hmm. And the doctor on the radio said, well, why don't you go back to school and be a Marine biologist? And I said, by the time I get done, I'll be like 55, 56 years mm-hmm. old. And the psychologist said, how old will you be if you don't go back to school? Exactly. That's like, it. Okay. So that's, mm-hmm. that's where I've always been. It's like, I want to learn. I want to continue to learn things. And when I see something that intrigues me, I want to learn about it, right? That's it. But for so some people, I, that's scary. And and for you, it wasn't scary. It was, it's like, or maybe it's it's a little intimidating, but this is something I want to do. And you go out and do it. And for a lot of people, that is seen as courageous. It may not seem like courage to you and me, but to other people watching, go, wow, I could never be that courageous. Yeah. Well, see, when I'm, I'm 70 now, when I was about 60, I was talking to our education department and they were saying, if I wanted to get my... You know, while I'm doing into schools, they wanted to see a degree. So at the age of 60, I went back to university to get a um, psychology degree. And so I was running my business and doing it online, you know, the training online. So it was 52 weeks a year. And uh, after the first year with distinctions and high distinctions, I realised that I looked at that and I thought, right, yeah, well, I'm going to be close to 70 by the time I get that degree. The only reason I pulled out of it was I realised that they would keep changing the goalposts. So I was wasting my time in doing it for the purpose I wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's the only thing I've really pulled out of in my life because I just realised a lot of time I was going to be wasting a lot of um, uh, my free time. So I was working seven days a week. Yeah. And this, you know, I think I took two periods of six days off uh, in uh, April and in September where we went out bush with the uh, taking boys out through their rites of passage. And uh, other than that, I'd had no holidays and I thought, right, I'm doing this for the wrong reason. It wasn't the fear of I'm going to be so old by the time I get there. It was more a case of what are the results I'm going to get when I get there. And so I pulled out for that reason. But uh, it's James Wooden who made that phrase or very similar to it, that the most important thing you'll ever learn is the the first, the the last thing you learn, sorry, the the next thing you learn after the, um, you think you know everything. And that was the thing. If I knew that there was always more that I had, I could learn and knowledge always answered problems. Yeah. And then to actually apply it, it's only through the application of it that you end up gaining wisdom. And so I thought, right, well, I want to be wiser than what I um, was the day before. So therefore it was a matter of keep learning, apply it. And uh, whatever I learn, I enjoy sharing with people and seeing them uh, get results. Excellent. Yeah, wisdom is more important than knowledge, I think, right? Mm. You can have all the book learning in the world if you don't know how to apply it, make those connections, connect those dots. Mm. Yeah. I've had clients come to me, have been working with psychologists for years and getting no results. And then they've come to me with, you know, take them through teaching them how to read other people. While they're doing that, the neon lights off them and they're starting to learn about themselves. And so they're getting their answers. 
without uh, somebody, you know, just going through a textbook approach and just giving them a hard time. Not, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great psychologists out there. Sure. And I've got a lot of yeah. friends who fit into that category. But there are a lot of people who just learn something and then virtually work from the textbook. That doesn't help many people. That's true. The Campfire Project. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. How did the Campfire Project get started? Well, working especially with men in business, I realized a lot of them, they, I asked them what, if there was one word that you would use to describe how you're feeling about things. The word confused kept coming up. And so I'd ask them, well, confused about what? A lot of men said to me, well, I thought my role as a man was to provide for the family. So I go out and I'm working hard and bringing the resources back. But I'm being told that I'm emotionally and physically absent. And I I can't be in both places at once. And that was causing a lot of frustration. Hmm. Then I said, you know, well, what else? And they said, well, in the workplace. We used to be able to just talk in a certain way. It was water off a duck's back. And there was, you know, we just get on with the job. But now with political correctness and gender equality and everything else, we're always on tender hooks about what we say. Right. And the end result then is we're worried about saying the wrong thing. You probably will bound to actually say the wrong thing. That was then causing them frustration. And that led on to anger. And in some cases, bullying in the workplace and at home, domestic violence. So I realized we don't fix problems by beating people up. We get to understand why they are the way they are, first of all. So I thought, right, the men needed a safe place where they just come and talk and have somebody listen, no counselling, no judgments, no telling them they were right or wrong, mm-hmm. but just be the eyes and ears that they couldn't get before. So I started the group, but I didn't want it to be a men's group. So I had women in there from day one. Nice. Now, I, my plans were to later interview the women, but I wanted the women first of all to hear how the men could speak sure. when they felt safe to do so. And I had the men doing one-on-ones and there were about 30 or 40 men that I'd interviewed up to that point. Then I brought them into panel discussions and we started talking about masculinity, femininity, the toxicity of those, pornography, drugs, alcohol, you name it, we covered it. And that's when I got messages from the women and I was waiting for it and I was hoping for it. And they said, we love these guys. We've never heard men talk so deeply about their emotions. And we really love the way that the, the wisdom that they're coming forward with on how to improve our societies. And they wanted to get involved. Hmm. And I thought, right, timing's right now. You've asked. The men have already started leading the way. So the women then came into the one-on-ones and the panel discussions. We've covered things like menstruation, menopause. Does size matter in the bedroom? And, yes, we're talking about penis size. Mm-hmm. We've um, had every subject you can think of in the group. We've got all genders, cultures, and religions are welcome. We've had no bigotry, no sexism or racism, or we've had in four, just over four years, we've had over 550 some odd hours of uh, video conversations and not once has anybody been disrespectful to anybody else. Wow. And so, as I said, everything I do in business is about creating and, uh, relationships mm-hmm. and it's in the Campfire Project is doing the same thing. But my job as a leader is to make myself redundant. I did it in the surf club with the first patrol I had with people that nobody else wanted. I then got, we won the patrol of the year. I then went on to being the club captain and kept that patrol together and brought one of the guys up to be the club, the patrol captain itself. They won the awards the next year again without me being involved in the selections at all. So, and then when I left the surf club, I talked somebody else into taking the role on. And a few years later, somebody who didn't like me, who saw me in the street one day said, oh, Mark was a better uh, club captain than you were ever. And I went, I had a smile on my face. He said, what are yeah. you smiling for? I said, because how could I go on and do something else if I left a position that couldn't be filled by somebody doing what I did as well as me, if not better than me? Right. And so I was happy that I put, he'd come up and he was far better than I was. And this nice. is the attitude I've had in every area of my life. And by helping that in the Campfire Project, if I was no longer here tomorrow, Mm-hmm. It'll keep going because there's others who have stepped up and taken those roles on. Nice. And in fact, uh, the uh, Scott Carson, who's now my um, co-host in there, is doing that work better than I've ever done before. Nice. And that's what a true job of a leader is. And I yes. think that yeah. might be where some people see a bit of courage because people are worried about if other people can do what I do, then I'm not going to be recognised. Exactly. But the thing is, if you do it really well and there are other people looking at you, you'll be recognized for that. And that's how you get promoted. Right. 
Exactly. That's how you then step out of that role. If you're running a business, for instance, if you don't bring the, your employees up to where they can do the work just as well as you, yep. and if you do it in the right way, they will love doing that work. They're loyal and you can stop working in your business and go and work on your business. Right. If you're not replaceable, you're not promotable. That's exactly, exactly. right. Yeah. No, and a lot of a lot of leaders, um, we've talked about this before, how they feel they have to be the smartest person in the room. And for some reason, if they give away their knowledge, they're less than they were before. Mm. It's like, no, you're you're helping grow these people. Our role as leaders is to create more leaders, not more followers, That's it. right? You want them to be as successful mm. as they possibly can be. And you step back in the shadows and let them shine. Yeah, well, I had somebody ask me, they said, well, what happens with the profiling if you teach somebody who becomes another Anthony Robbins? And I said, well, I'm going to be really upset if I don't have my seat on their front line every time they speak, they're reserved for me so I can go along. I'll be there with pen and paper. Yep. I'll be taking notes. Absolutely. Because, the, you know, if I know everything, then I've got nowhere I can go. Right. I've finished. But if I've got that capacity to keep learning, I can keep growing and my value increases. So when I look at it that way, there is, there's no courage needed. It's the way in which you look at it. Yes, I need to have courage in this particular area if I have one belief around it. But if I change that belief, there's no necessary necessity for courage. It's there straight away. Yep. That's nice. why when people say, well, what uh, you know, things have you done that were courageous? I look back and I go, I'm struggling to find anything. <laughs> it is all courageous. Starting a program like this, you know, Yes, it's absolutely necessary, but a lot of people would not have the courage to put themselves out like that and say, you know, just come and open up, right? Mm. That's hard for some people to open up, but you, mm. you've shown when they get together, it may take a, a minute or two, but people want to be heard. They want to be listened to. Mm. And see, I'm a very lazy um, interviewer when it comes to the Campfire Project, because I'll do an introduction of what the person's shared with me about them. Then my first question to them is, well, if this is what you're doing today, tell us about your journey. Tell us the things that you went through, et cetera. Share as much or as little as you want to share. And then I shut up. Nice. Now, I've had uh, one guy who was 99 that I interviewed, and he said, I've done an interview recently. It was a 15-minute interview, and he said it was really hard. He said, and you want me to talk longer? And I said, well, look, I'm just going to ask you one question. Well, it was 45 minutes into the interview before I got a chance to say another word. <laughs> uh, and at the end of it, he went, he looked at the clock and he went, we've been talking that long. Yeah. And I went, yep. And he said he didn't even feel it because in that it's create the, the environment for the person, allow them to then share, use that active, active listening, but do it in a way in which they, you really want to hear. Yeah. I want to understand people. I'm not listening to respond to them. I'm listening to be able to understand them. Nice. And so as long as they're talking, I'm not going to interrupt them because I know that this is a story they haven't really told anybody before. It's been really hard for them to do that. Then all of a sudden now they're in that situation and their unconscious mind, while they're talking, I know their unconscious mind is talking to their conscious mind. Mm-hmm. And I've had that many people say, that's the best therapy I've, I've ever had. And I go, well, you want to thank the therapist? And they go, like, they go to thank me. I go, no, go look in the mirror and say, thank you. Yep. You were the therapist. My job was just to facilitate, to facilitate that space for them, hold that space and do nothing else. Exactly. So when you have the men come in and talk and the women are in the group, is it their, their wives, their partners that are in the group, or is it a different set of women? Because I... I can see how this would be good for uh, students to be able to talk about their frustration with parents and parents mm. talk about the frustration with students, but not have the parent and the student, you know, together at the same time. How do these, yeah, well, how do you get these groups together? Is it both? Well, or? it was originally, it was you know, a lot of the men who came in no longer with their families, you know, they're, okay. they're divorced, they're separated from their children. They're going through a lot of tough times. Mm. One of the uh, gentlemen I interviewed in the very early days, he was six years old when his brother sold him for sex and those rapes went on for three years. Wow. And then after they, when he was too big to be held down, then it was physical and emotional abuse from his mother and uh, brother till he left home. Uh, others who have been living in houses full of you know, domestic violence and other things. So stuff that uh, had happened around him. One guy who was 18, lovely you know, childhood, he was not you know, around about 15, 18. In that age, he was between that age, he was out at a um, 
uh, a, a, what they call it, boarding school. And it's what happened at the boarding school that actually triggered his bipolar. Mm. So those sort of stories, seeing down and hearing what they've been through, or men who are transitioned to, uh, to females, females who are transitioned in males, the males, all the different genders, all of those conversations, it's just a matter of holding their space. So it was very easy to do that and just listen to them because I'm learning so much when they're talking. Yeah. And that was, I would say, to, um, I'm not really giving them a gift. I'm giving an opportunity to share their story. I'm the one who's receiving the gift because I've had so many people, you know, well over 300 people who have um, on one-on-ones who have been happy to sit there and share the things that they were ashamed of or were worried about other people, mm-hmm. other people's comments and everything else, and they've shared that with me. That I see as a massive compliment. Wow. That's excellent. Now, is this just a local Australian program or is this global? No, well, as I said, the, uh, the uh, those first couple of gentlemen, uh, two of them were in America, one was in England, another one in New Zealand, a few here in Australia. So we've got about or over 2,000 people in the group. They're worldwide. Uh, as I've said, I've interviewed everybody on uh, just about uh, every continent. The only big land mass is I haven't um, uh, interviewed somebody yet is at the Northland South Poles, but I'm working on it because there's bound to be somebody in a research hut. Sure. If they've got the internet, I'd love to know why they're doing what they're doing and what life is like there. Yep. But uh, it was men from all over the place and then it was women. So when we bring them into the groups, some of them, they're not related. We've had we interviewed husbands and wives together and they've shared things there. But um, one of the things with Scott, as I said, the co-host, he came in and did a one-on-one with me. Then he joined the panel discussions. Then I could see his quality. I actually worked that out in the first five minutes when I met him at a, a, um, a conference in Sydney before this. And so I asked him if he'd be ready to step up and would he run some one-on-ones and then some panel discussions. Well, it took a bit of convincing, but now he's lo- he's loving him. But he stepped up in the first interview he had, he wanted to interview his father. And mm-hmm. I went, well, how is that going to go? And he said, well, I haven't spoken to my father in 30 years. Wow. He was, uh, Scott was on the streets at the age of 14. His father had left home before that. And Scott's now, at that time, was about 45. And as he said, he wanted to interview his father, not to find fault with his father, but to understand why his father made the decisions he's made, to understand his life. And so that was an absolutely brilliant uh, interview. And then later on, his uh, son decided he wanted to interview uh, his father, Scott. And so you've got Lee, the grandfather, you've got Scott, the father, and you've got young Oscar. Oscar went away and uh, researched his own questions, Uh, 19 questions in total. One of them was, why is it, Dad, you can give to everybody else, but you can't receive yourself? Mm. And Oscar was nine years old at the time. Wow. So we've had from nine to 99 years old. And as I said, we've had all genders, cultures and religions. And, you know, there isn't one story that's the same as anybody else. And this is where I say to people that people look at their story and say, but I don't really have an important story. Everybody is uniquely different. I don't care about Myers-Briggs and DISC and all those where you put people in boxes. Sure. I take them out and treat the person as an individual, uniquely different to everybody else on the planet. That being the case, there's no two personalities that are identical. Everybody's got a story and therefore there's no two stories that are identical. So every story has value. And every story is equally important regardless of what the background of the person because it's your story. Therefore, it's important. And I have the privilege of uh, having so many people sharing those stories with me. It's extremely humbling. I bet it is. That is amazing. Love it. If people want to find out more about the Campfire Project. How can they do it's that? It's easy to you find. Website? Yep, we've got a website and it's thecampfireproject.com.au. Okay. AU for Australia. Because uh, that's one thing that I'm proud of. The group itself, as I said, it's been running for four years and we've done what no other group worldwide has been able to do. And that has a, has a place of total inclusion and total equality. Nice. And we've had no disrespect at all in that period of time. Love it. Very cool. All right. And if they want to find out more about you and get in touch with you, um, do you have a website? The easiest way to find my website, again, it's just my name, which is Alan Stevens, A-L-A-N and S-T-E-V-E-N-S dot com dot A-U. And the the profiling and and reading people, do you do any of the training for that? Do you have classes for that? 
I've got everything from short online courses. I do individual profiles for people. So if somebody wants to mm. better understand their spouse or their children, that sort of thing, or they've got work colleagues they want to improve their relationships with, I've got short online courses that anybody can then jump on and do those fairly quickly. Uh, and I've also then got the master programs where I teach small groups or one-on-one. And at the moment, my target is to create and train my competition because the way I look at it, we need more people doing it, but they need to be doing it right. So I feel like I've got a moral obligation to train anybody who wants to learn with the right attitude that they want to help other people. I've I've got a a moral obligation to train them. So, but it's uh, something that can give all your uh, listeners. I have a free course. Okay. And the best way to find that uh, is uh, my website alanstevens.com.au forward slash and the word free, F-R-E-E. Okay, perfect. Now, that should take them straight there. If, by the way, you put that link into Facebook, Facebook then puts a whole bunch of you know, their own uh, code on the end of it. Right. That won't work. Okay. So there is another one for that. If anybody can't get access to it because of that, because that's a redirection from my website to my training platform. Okay. Just send me a message and I'm happy to uh, give the direct link for that, which it's a bit longer in the coding. Okay, perfect. Okay, that is great. Well, I will make sure that all of these links are in the show notes so people know how to get in touch with you and learn more about the Campfire Project. Definitely want to follow and and see where this goes and how it grows. That's amazing. Thank you. Very cool. Alan, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking time out to to be with us. I would love to have you back on the program and continue on with this because, like I said, I I find the whole whole thing fascinating. Thank you very much for that, Harlan. I appreciate it. We'd love to have you back. All right, listeners, hope you guys are taking a lot of good notes, a lot of good information here. Definitely check out thecampfireproject.com.au and alanstevens.com.au forward slash free for that free course he's got available. All right, and make sure you share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming. And that's it for me, Coach Harlan, saying so long for now. Thank you.